Good morning. It's good to be with you here today. As I come today, I recognize that uh, we're in the middle of summer, and our thoughts are attuned to maybe several different opportunities and activities of the summer. We probably have a lot of different ideas of how the summer will unfold, and maybe one or two of those will work out the way that we have them planned. All seasons are designed and implemented under the direction of a sovereign God. Our lives are certainly, by his design and for his glory, as believers in Jesus Christ. And that's why we gather here today to worship him in spirit and in truth. I'd like you to make your way, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to look at a passage of scripture that, in many ways, has that as its focus. And the last song that we sang truly, in many ways, reflects a lot of the thoughts of the man by the name of Paul, who was the apostle of the early church, who wrote the text that uh, the Spirit of God directed him to share, that we'll be looking at this morning. And as we go there to 2 Corinthians 4... I have a couple of critical questions for you to ponder with me this morning. The first one would be this, and this is why I kind of posed it or couched our introduction with the comment about summer. The first question is, what motivates you? What motivates me? Not just in our daily lives, but because we gather here to worship this morning, what motivates me? and us as Christians. What is our motivation? It's not a bad thing to ask every once in a while. Maybe it should be something we should ask every single day. And the second one kind of springs out of that then because we recognize that we're not alone, that we have not been saved just to go on our own solo journey, but Christ, by his finished work at Calvary and his redemption and glorious resurrection, we actually... And obviously meet on the first day of the week on Sunday to remember him and to rejoice in his resurrection. So what motivates us as a church? What are the things, what are the opportunities, what are the principles that would motivate us as we would go through life? This passage before us this morning is a very unique one. I think that 2 Corinthians, this this letter that Paul wrote, which may have been actually the third or fourth letter that he had actually written to the church in Corinth, but is the second one recorded for us in Scripture. Paul becomes very um, personal and autobiographical. He really opens his heart in ways that... um, Maybe he doesn't in some other of the letters. And I think partly it's because he spent so much time engaging with them. He is excited for them in many ways because as he reflects in 1 Corinthians, they're a very gifted group of people. But I think also he shares in a somewhat mode of frustration because even though they're gifted, they still sometimes don't get it. The it is the focus of our study this morning. Do we really get it? The motivation that drives us every day. It doesn't matter who we are, where we're located, what we're doing at the moment. What is the motivation that drives you and me? 
Well, in the midst of all of this, I'll give you the answer, I guess, uh, before we even get started, because we're going to conclude in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, about the middle of that chapter, where Paul makes this statement in verse 9, after all that he's going to share that we're going to kind of look at before we get back to this point. He says, it doesn't matter where I am in life, no matter what life tends to seem to throw at me, although we know it's under, all under the direction and the ministry of God. I make it my aim, and he then actually uses it in the plural and plural and join all of us together. Chapter 5, verse 9. Because of all these things, we make it our aim, we make it our goal to please him. So there you go. We could just end right now and have the answer to the two questions and go on our merry way. But frankly... There's a lot that is packed in what he shares here leading up to this uh, focal point statement in verse 9 that is so daily for us in our lives that we need to really digest that. Then to get to the point where we can truly say with, with enthusiasm, with spiritual fervor, yes, I will, and as a church, we will make it our aim, our goal to please him. Go back with me in chapter 4. We're not going to take time to study some of these particular verses, but it really helps us to kind of gain context for why Paul can say what he says in chapter 5 and verse 9, beginning in chapter 4, verse 7. We have this treasure, chapter 4, verse 7 of 2 Corinthians, we have this treasure in jars of clay, earthen vessels, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way. Now, Paul kind of frames this in a corporate context so that the people receiving this letter and reading this letter would be able to identify with these statements. But frankly, these are personal experiences that he has gone through. And we'll see that even further if you would read on in chapters uh, 10 and 11, where he really gets down to the nitty gritty of what his life as an apostle of Jesus Christ has been like. But he at least kind of pulls back the curtain to let us see enough of his life right here. We are, verse 8, in every way afflicted, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. And here's our text for our study this morning. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, 
but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporal, but the things that are unseen are permanent. They are eternal. Now, what motivates a man like Paul, who describes himself as afflicted, as crushed, as perplexed, as persersecuted, as struck down, as carrying a death burden, what keeps him going? His answer: I make it my aim to please him. I recognize that as part of my life, my goal is to please my master, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, a, who similarly faced all of these kinds of afflictions, died, but not as a sinner, but for sinners, rose again so that we might have through him life, eternal life, and the hope of glory. Every one of us here today has motivations. But I would dare say that if our motivation doesn't align with what Paul is talking about here, in terms of the fact that it doesn't matter what the opportunity may be, and there will be several that we've already got planned in our day planners or on our smart devices that will take place this week and they'll be there. They'll fit the framework of where we've slotted it on our calendars. But we all know that this week there will also be things that will happen that none of us are aware of. Those incidental and sometimes when they start out seemingly simple and almost meaningless things that can tend to then become very large and significant events in our lives. And that was the life of Paul. If you trace it, all these little words that are strong adjectives of what he had experienced have behind them sometimes unique glorious come to Jesus kind of opportunities and some were frankly kicks in the guts sucker punches knife in the back experiences and he says in all of them i make it my aim to please him how do you do that Well, he highlights it for us. I often like to say when you see words like so, which is what we have here in verse 16, and then we're going to have the word therefore shared later on in the text that we're studying today. That those words are very significant. The scripture tends to unfold with especially in the New Testament some letters that are written by the apostles where it seems as if the weight of the doctrine comes in the first part of the letter, the first part of the book that is written. And then you get to this point where there's this kind of a pivot point and the hinges are there and the door opens where we now learn the application of those dynamic principles that we need to embrace and here's why the scripture goes on to say and the little word so in verse 16 and the word like therefore is almost like God taking his heavenly highlighter and marking it on the page of scripture to say now can or whatever your name may be can you really need to pay attention here because everything that i've just taught is for a purpose and here it comes if i'm going to make it my aim and if we're going to make it our aim to have hearts that are focused upon bringing him glory as verse 9 says paul first says 
that I must have a heart that is focused upon God's perspective on things. That's verses 14 or verses 16 through 18 that we just read here in chapter 4. I must have God's perspective on things, on my life, on everything that transpires in my life. Not just my life, but everyone around me in their lives as well. I've got to have his perspective. And there are comparisons that he uses here in verses 16 through 18. Notice he talks in verse 16 and compares things like the outer self, the things that are exterior, external, versus the inner self, the things that truly are what identify who we are, what goes on internally, which frankly is the, that which will help us to respond to all the outer things, the external things that are going to be going on in life. And so I've got to have God's perspective on those things. What, what is God's purpose in all of these things taking place? The outer self, he says, wasting away. The inner self, because of the Spirit of God resident within us as believers, is being renewed day by day and moment by moment. I've got to have God's perspective on that. If all I'm caught up in is the fact that every day it seems like I lose another 3,000 hair follicles off the top of my head, then it's not going to be a very good day. If my sports team doesn't win whatever endeavor is taking place this day and it's all about outward things, I'm not going to be happy. If things don't work well in my workplace endeavors and it doesn't seem as if everything's coming together the way that I would like it to come, or I lose my job when I walk into work tomorrow, or I go to the doctor on Tuesday just expecting another routine physical like every other year, and there's one of those highlighter moments with my physician. I get the phone call on Thursday that none of us wanted to receive and none of us anticipated. If I focus on outer things solely, my perspective on life is going to be really, really limited and frankly, pretty bad. And so he says, I have to have God's perspective. I have to focus not just on outward things, but on the inner self that is being renewed. He compares things that are seen, are transient in this text, as well as the things that are unseen, that are, frankly, those things which are eternal. We're so caught up in what we can see, the visual. You know, I like that. I I can see it. I can feel it. I can touch it. I can taste it. I can smell it. I can experience it. And therefore, it's real. And I grasp it. But God says there's so much that is unseen. That in many ways is more real than the things that we can see. And as believers, I think there's a text that says we walk by faith, thank you class, and not by sight. That's what he's talking about here. When it comes to appreciating God's perspective, I constantly have to draw back upon the well that God has placed as a reservoir in my heart where I have hidden God's word where so I will not sin against him and so that I might have the proper perspective, not just on the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. The things that God is doing behind the scenes with everything that I can see at this point that remind me, keep his perspective. And in that way, I bring glory to God. He contrasts the problems of life. I mean, he's talking about all these things that are going on. I'm perplexed, I'm crushed, I'm afflicted, all these things. 
But then he also counterbalances that, and frankly, the balance scales are tipped well in advantage of the other party. He says he talks about the God's about God's promises. I mean, we can spend all day talking about problems if we want to, but that just makes us like pagan unbelievers who don't know God. Or we can spend our time focusing upon his promises, which will help us to get through the challenges and issues of life. God's perspective. When you compare it like pan scales, the affliction, he says, is frankly very light compared to all of the riches that are a part of glory. They're momentary compared to eternity. And I think it's why if he chooses an illustration, the Spirit of God chooses an illustration for Paul through all these verses leading up to his strong statement in verse 9, that we make it our aim to please Christ by using the thing that we're most attached to, but the thing that is most frail, and that's our human body. Because we like to think that we're eternal in these bodies. And in one sense, we are. We sang about that in a couple of songs this morning. We recognize that one day, even these frail bodies that will one day be committed to dust, will be resurrected in the glory of God. But that's then, and this is now. And we would like to hope that there's some miracle potion or something that's going to happen that will make us look better than we really are. And God says you can't focus on that. Death humbles us. Our frailty, our finiteness in these human bodies humbles us. It reminds me that I and we are not too important to die. We all face that. Death disorients us in many ways. We have to ask the question, so really how important am I if I'm going to die? And death focuses us to remind us we're really not the center of the universe. We like to think we are. It seems like all life emanates in us and around us, but it doesn't. I mean, there are things going on on the other side of the world today that are just as significant and just as meaningful and just as purposeful. There are people who are leaving. There are people who are dying all over this planet. And death tends to focus us on the reality. You know what? I'm really not the center of the universe. Because God loves every person, regardless of our age, our, our location, our time in history, our background, our ethnicity. He loves us all. And chapter 5 takes that sentiment and helps us to focus on living life in a temporary location while awaiting the perfect and permanent one. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. For, another highlight moment. For, if we know, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan. Want to just groan with me now, tent people? Ugh. I got a right knee right now. This I don't even know what I did. I just woke up one day and it's just sore every once in a while. It doesn't happen all the time. Well, I know what it is. Ken, you're getting old. 
You thought diving for balls out in the outfield and catching them and getting people in the stands to cheer, you thought that's going to be a great thing. Until you get older, and now that knee doesn't work like it should work. You use your favorite joint story or whatever. We groan. We groan. Being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. I keep God's perspective to understand what is truly important in life, and I balance that then with God's promise. I'm able to stay focused because God has promised me that this isn't all there is to life. And he talks about that in verses 1 through 4. Grief tends to clarify that as we face the realities of death. There is a book that I came across about a year ago, written by a man by the name of Matthew McCullough, that has a two-word title, and it's got a cover that is black and white, and it is called Remember Death. Uh, you know, you write a, a book and you have that as a title, and you think, wow, people are just going to run out and just buy that by the, by the truckload full. But what McCullough does is that he, from a theological, biblical perspective, qualifies death for us who know Christ as our Savior. He makes this statement and remember death. The Bible teaches us that death is not the natural, natural end to a merely biological life. Death is an intrusion into the perfect world of the Creator designed by the same Creator to make a point. Death is a punishment for human pride. It exposes our foolish confidence in our freedom to be whoever we want to be. Another writer put it this way. Clara Pearson says, among the night people is the name of her book. It is never easy to crawl out of one's skin and the last molting, thinking of like a bird or an animal that molts, the last molting is always the hardest one of all. Isn't that true? And we can be fatalistic, we can be pessimistic, and just say, all there is to life is that we're going to die. And we miss the big picture in the whole story. My heart and our hearts must be focused upon God's promise, because grief is what clarifies where our true hope lies. I was reminded in graphic terms in the last six months about this very fact. Um, I know some of you are praying for my family. My dad has had cancer issues. I, I think mentioned that before when I've spoken here the last almost five years. And um, my mom and my dad both were in very poor shape. And if you would have asked me on November 1st, 2018, Ken, which of your parents do you think God might call to glory? First, I would have said my mom. Because she was going through just horrific health issues and um, uh, was in and out of hospitals and rehabilitation and all these things. And my dad, who had cancer, has had a very rough life the past five years, but was at least maintaining. But then he took a slide in a very strong way beginning in early December. And the first week of February, I was called. I'm my parents' medical advocate. And... Uh, I was called from Southwest Ohio by the rehab facility my father was in, and they said, Ken, we just can't help your dad. 
It's not that your dad doesn't want help, and it isn't that your dad doesn't try. He's just worn out. He can't do it. And we've been talking through this as a family, and I talked with the doctors before, and I said, so what you mean is we need to put him into hospice care? And she said, yes. So February 1st, on a Saturday, I'm my wife and I are at my parents' uh, apartment at their assisted living facility, and the EMS is wheeling my dad from the rehab center back to be with my mom. And they'd only been together a total of 10 days since November 1st. So this was actually a good thing because my parents needed to be back together. And my dad was still alert and doing well. And he had um, a hat on. They gave him a hat because amazingly for February 1st, it was a sunny day in, at noontime when they brought him. He had a pair of sunglasses. I wish I'd grabbed my smartphone to take a picture. He had sunglasses on like John Lennon used to wear. And I looked at my dad and I said, Dad, you're styling there, buddy. And he goes, I know it. He said, I need to look good to see your mom again. And it was just a fun moment. I talked to the hospice nurse after they got my dad settled in the hospital bed. And she said, Ken, I think it's going to probably be a week to 10 days. And I said, okay. So I talked to Sharon and we said, we've got to run, we've got to get back to Grand Rapids because we've got to get some things together. I needed to bring some things to, frankly, be able to, help with my dad's memorial service pictures and other things that I hadn't brought in our haste to get down there before. And um, we got back. But on the way in Grand Rapids, I thought, well, even though I don't have that much hair, I ought to get a haircut. And I'm there at the barber shop, and uh, they've known me. I've gone to this place almost 26 years, and it was really interesting because they knew my dad was in poor health, but they didn't know he was dying. And so as they finish with my haircut, one person, the person who did my hair, says, well, good, and then they realize good luck is not going to, is just not going to do it. And they just kind of stumble, and I said, I just said thank you. I go up to the cashier, and she looks at me, and she knows what's going on, and she said, well, I hope everything turns out And then she realizes what she's saying. And I saw the horror on her face. I said, it's okay. Because you're right. It is going to turn out well. They know my background and all this. And I think they're probably worried, oh boy, here we're going to get an hour message or something like that. But it just reminded me, when you do not have Jesus Christ as your Savior, this tent is all there is. This life is all there is. And friend, you may be here today, and that may be the way you look at things. And I just want you to know, as the song goes, there's more to this life than living and dying. Than just trying to make it through another day. There's more to this life because of what the Bible is saying right here. Our heart is focused because of God's promise. We lived in northern Indiana when I went to seminary, and uh, we were newlyweds. We hadn't been married a year. We're looking for a place to live, going to rent something. Rent was high. We thought about trying to buy something with our meager incomes that we had pooled together, but we didn't have very much. And interest rates at that point were 14%. 14%. I hear what houses are going for now, and I thought, man, they're just giving them away. which is what my father-in-law said when we told him. And he said, I'll loan you the money 
to get something cheap. Well, that was the, the cheap part was what I heard the most. I should have been excited about loaning the money. And we bought this mobile home and it was outside of town and it was called Suburban Acres. And the byline is this. Oh, it gets better. Mobile home living at its finest. I looked at my wife. I said, here we are. We found it. This is it. We buy a trailer that was manufactured by Windsor. So it sounds royal, you know? So we, we moved to Suburban Acres, mobile home living at its finest. And we move in our Windsor house that when we went to look at it, it was still springtime and it was cool and it's surrounded by oak trees. And we move in and the next week is the hottest year in the last 50 years. And someone in the time between when the former owner moved out and then, and we moved in had turned that mobile home into a pizza oven. It was horrible. And what made it even worse was no air conditioners around in our area. Every air conditioner in the region was sold out. I called my parents back in Southern Ohio and I said, find us an air conditioner. My dad went everywhere. He said, son, we can't find anything. Buy us a fan. No fans available anywhere. My parents drove to Cincinnati, Ohio to buy the last fan, which was a display fan at a Sears Roebuck store and they drove it all the way up to Northern Indiana so we could have one fan blowing on us. Just so we would bake faster, I guess. And every day, we would drive through into suburban acres, and I would see that phrase, mobile home living at its finest, and I'd want to find the guy who painted the sign and show him some mobile home living. It was not fine. It was not fun. But fall arrived, and it got a little cooler, and it was nice, and all of that, and we went away to go visit our family over the Christmas holidays, and we got back, and I opened it up, and the same person who had turned that thing, that metal box, into a furnace had turned it into a walk-in freezer. The heat had gone out. Long story short, I got the, the pilot light lit on the furnace, the, the heat starts warming things up, and then I hear my sweet newlywed wife up in the kitchen saying, hey, I hear water running, but I don't have the spigot on. Every joint of every pipe, I didn't think about the fact when you turn it back on, frozen pipes are going to, they're going to just bust at the seams, and I am standing I'm a Baptist. I believe in immersion, and that's what those pipes did. They absolutely immersed me. No sprinkling here. It was total immersion. And by then, I just wanted to plow that sign down outside of that village. We live in tents, folks. He talks about it here. If this tent, our earthly home, is destroyed, it is. In this tent, verse 2, we groan, we do. While we are still in this tent, verse 3, or verse 4, we groan being burdened, we sure are. If we just focus on that, I am going to be the biggest sourpuss of a person ever on this planet. But again, he balances it out by talking about the promises. If, he says, if the tent that is, our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. That if is implying, you know what, not all of us are going to die. Jesus is going to return in his rapture, and some of us are going to just automatically be brought into the presence of the Lord. It could happen today. 
And that tent won't be destroyed. It'll just be transformed. And people like my dad, my dad's body and other loved ones, beloved from the body of Christ, will join us in the air and we'll meet the Lord and we'll be forever changed. You got to keep thinking that when you look in the mirror and you don't like, look like, like what is looking back at you. When you look in the mirror of life during the week and you don't like everything that's coming down the road at you. When you look in the rearview mirror and you don't appreciate what all has transpired in your life. We make it our aim to please him. And Paul says we do that by remembering God's promise. Most likely we'll be like my dad. And one day he'll hear the voice of his savior and he'll enter into his presence and Loved ones will stand by a graveside to commit remains to the earth. And Paul says, if that's the case, just remember this, you still have hope. Because you have a house, you have a building that is being prepared that is glorious. And it will happen. Because the architect and the engineer and the builder has left to go back with his father and it's there waiting on us as he is. And we need to remember that. So I focus upon God's promises. And because of that, I have hope. So stay focused. Stay focused on God's perspective. Stay focused on God's promise. And then look again at verse 5. He has prepared us for this, who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Keep God's promises because you know he's present with you. He's with you every single moment, every single part of the walk. He's present with you. He knows exactly what you're going through. He said, Jesus said himself to his followers, his disciples, and by implication, you and me, I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so you know this, and he goes into extensive teaching of those closest to him, his disciples, in John chapters 13 through 17. And that's when he introduces his whole principle and understanding as a part of God's presence, the fact that the Spirit of God will dwell within us. He will not just be with you, but he will reside in you to guide and direct you and to help you and to empower you and to embolden you and to strengthen you in all seasons of life. And he makes that mention again here today. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, verse 5, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Is God with you today? You better believe it, because His Spirit dwells in you. God going to help me through this challenge? You know He will, because His Spirit will empower you and give you wisdom to know how to handle it. You going to make it to the end? Absolutely, because God dwells in you. And God can never be separated from himself. And when you are in God, in Christ, you have all of God. It's never ending. And that's his 
presence, Christ in you. Paul talks about it to the Colossian believers, the hope of glory. Romans chapter 8, verses 22 through 27, talks again, Paul talks again about all the afflictions, all the challenges, and he says, do you understand that, yes, there are challenges, there are groanings, there are agonies, and that's why the Spirit of God dwells within you. He at times groans for you when you don't even know what to think or what to pray or how to respond. He's there. He helps. He guides. He directs because God is always present with us. That's such a wonderful thing to remember. But, final point. That's not really what it's all about. He goes back... And we go back to verse 9. So, whether we are home in tents or away, we make it our aim to please Him. God's pleasure is what our hearts must most be focused about. His pleasure. He is the one who enables us to not only just make it through life, but to live it with joy and victory, just like we sang earlier today. I love this statement by C.S. Lewis. He asks the question, grief, or he makes a statement first, grief reorients how we think about nostalgia. And he asks the question, do you think backwards nostalgically, or do you think forward nostalgically? Would you like to just go back to the quote-unquote good old days, which frankly weren't that good at times? Or is your nostalgia looking forward to a home not made with hands whose maker is God? See, where our pleasure is driven will define how firmly our trust and our love is for God. And that's the whole point of why he writes everything he's written up to this point as we get to verse 9. For me to live is Christ, Paul told the Philippian believers, and to die is gain. What does a prophet, Jesus says, a man, if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what should a man give in return for his soul? He would say to people who had just lost a dear loved one, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he would die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Ken, today, you may not die physically, but you're going to be in a broken, lost, dying world. Do you believe that I am the resurrection and life? If you believe that, Ken, then you're going to live by my promises and for my pleasure. And that's the case for you as well, church. That's what he wants us to focus on. Don't wait till the end of your life to text the character of what you're trusting. Don't wait till someone says you've got a week to live. Live it every single day for God's glory as well as for your benefit. One of my favorite movies is called Shawshank Redemption. It's rather gross at points, but I mean, it always just grabs my heart because Shawshank Redemption, written by Stephen King, the, the novel, amazingly, 
has such spiritual connotations to it. And most of us go back and we think about the the um, falsely accused convict Andy Dufresne as he crawls through foulness, as, as Red calls it in his uh, dialogue about it, uh, out that sewer pipe, out into that water, and it's the, there's a thunderstorm and the rain's pouring down, and he falls into that that ravine with the water, and then he comes up out of it like this, and it's like, wow, what a picture of my redemption. But there's another dialogue that goes on through that, and I've, I've seen this film several times, and um, I've always appreciated certain aspects of the dialogue. But there's this, this ongoing commentary in, in the film where, where Red and Andy are talking outside in the prison courtyard during a break, and um, they're reflecting back on their life, and of course everyone scoffed at Andy first of all because he says, I'm innocent, and, and Red says, as he first meets, well everyone in here is innocent, everyone says they're innocent, and you know, not knowing that Andy really was, but uh, so, you know, after a while, you know, Andy's talking about when he's going to get out. And, you know, the guys are looking at him like, you got a life sentence, you're not, you're not getting out of here. No one gets paroled out of Shawshank. Well, first Brooks does. Brooks is this old man who's very, he's just, he's actually lived just about his whole life in prison. And, and sadly, he takes his own life after he's been out of the prison for a couple of weeks in a rental facility that they usually rent to ex-cons because he just can't handle the realities of life. And as they're reflecting on that, Andy and Red are sitting in the courtyard together. And Andy finally gets so frustrated and upset with Red because Red's saying, Andy, give up your hope, give up your optimism, give up your, your, your thought of a life after prison bars. And Andy says, yeah, I know. Get busy living or get busy dying. And that's kind of the theme that runs throughout the whole film. And then one day, after Andy has broken out and gone down to Mexico, like he said, Red, as Andy had asked him, goes to find this rock when he's paroled from prison, under which are instructions of where to eat, meet Andy. And when Red is on the bus traveling down to Mexico, in his mind he thinks, get busy living or get busy dying. Now, I think Stephen King, in writing this, made this as an either-or proposition. You're either going to get busy living, or you're just going to be get busy dying. I think it's a both-and for the believer. It's a statement that recognizes that while we're in this earth, on this earth, we live in tents that are failing and frail. And one day, these bodies will meet their demise. But because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we don't just get busy ready for that day. We get busy with the idea that there is a hope beyond the grave. So in this life, because I realize the preciousness of my faith and my trust in Jesus Christ and the fact that God has called me through his great commission to be an ambassador, his ambassador, his evangelist, that's what he's going to talk about at the end of chapter 5. That's the thought process here. If that's the case, I better get busy dying, understanding that my life is short and there are many who need to know the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. In church, that's true for all of us. (laughs) But we get busy living because we know that our life extends well beyond the grave. Because we have eternal life in Jesus Christ. And so, we 
make it our aim to please him. Pleasing him helps us get busy living and get busy dying. Death says to you, you are less important than you've ever allowed yourself to believe. The gospel says that you are far more loved than you ever would have imagined. The gospel tells us that we are important because we are loved, not loved because we are important. And God's love initiates, marks us off, and redefines who we are in Jesus Christ. We make it our aim to please him. And Father, that's our desire today. We pray by your grace and for your glory, we will please you by getting busy living while we're getting busy dying. We die to self. We live for Christ. And Christ is all I need and all we need. And may you be glorified today, Lord, as we make it our aim to please you. In Jesus' name, amen.